Good morning, Sojourn. Today's sermon will be on Isaiah 11, 1 to 10. Um, If you do not have a Bible, please raise your hand, and one of the ushers will bring them over to you. Uh, If you don't have have a Bible, that's your gift today for free. So please, take it home with you. Um, As we read Isaiah 11, 1 to 10, let's all rise for the reading of God's word. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his lions. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and a lion and a fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put forth, put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It's good to gather with you on this Christmas Eve Eve. Just grateful that you're able to be here this morning. As Eric said, if you're new here, just thankful that God brought you to gather with us this morning, whether you're in town visiting or just checking out who Jesus is or you are uh, looking for a new church to be a part of. We're grateful that you're here. And for those that call Sojourn your church, uh, just grateful to be able to worship with you this morning. Uh, Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we jump into his word this morning. Holy God, as we gather on this Christmas Eve Eve, I just pray that you would captivate our hearts this morning. I pray that you captivate us with your glorious story of redemption and restoration. May your Holy Spirit do a mighty work today. Would you help us to see and hear what your word has for us this morning, to receive that, that you would encourage us and draw us closer to who you are, that we might know you and follow you and experience your grace and rejoice in your goodness. God, help us to celebrate this morning for what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would work today for your glory and for our good. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, every week uh, I, I leave my house most days and I actually go to Kevin and Shelby Kruzak's house. They're members of our church and they have graciously provided some space in their home uh, for me to be able to work and study and do sermon prep. 
Uh, and so we live in the same neighborhood, and so most days I either drive or sometimes ride my bike to their house on just the neighborhood streets. They live about a mile away from our house. And several of the streets in my part of the neighborhood, and really just in that part of Fairfax, are named after trees. There's Poplar Street, Walnut, Chestnut, Maple, Oak. Maple is the main street that I take from my house to their house. And our neighborhood has been around for a really long time, and so there are a lot of really, really big trees in our neighborhood. But there's this one house that I go by each time who's cut down some of these big trees. So instead of a giant oak or a maple shade tree in their yard, there's just a giant stump. It's about three feet in diameter. And at this time of year as well, people are still kind of collecting leaves from falling off the trees and blowing them or raking them to the curb to be picked up. But stumps don't produce leaves because stumps don't produce life. Instead, stumps, as long as they remain, are continual reminders of what once was or what could have been. Well, today's the fourth Sunday of Advent. It's a time of celebration for the arrival of our King. But our text today that we're looking at begins with a picture of a stump. This isn't any ordinary stump. It's a stump that instead of being in a state of indefinite death, shows us a picture of how life and hope can spring from unexpected places. So I hope today, as we enter this time of celebration of Christmas, I hope today gives you hope. Whether you already know Jesus or you're just checking him out. You know, hope, I think, is something that all of us need because all of us are dealing with the brokenness of our world in some way. Whether that's just experiencing the world at large or just personally in our own lives. And our text today was written some 2,700 years ago. And it's a text that's full of expectation of the arrival of a king of hope, a king of hope who steps into our brokenness. But as we look at it here and now in 2018 in Fairfax, Virginia, during this season of Advent, we get to not only celebrate that the king of hope has come, but grow in the hope that he will come again. And so with that, let's go to Isaiah 11 this morning and see what God has to, have, has to say to us from his word this morning. May he bless the preaching of his word You know, sometimes when we jump into the middle of a book of the Bible, it can be a little bit challenging. It's one of the reasons that we preach through books of the Bible at Sojourn. But there are times and occasions and circumstances where it makes sense or it's appropriate for us to just zero in on a text within a particular book. But that never changes the fact that context is really important if we're going to understand what's being said and why it's being said and how you and I are supposed to apply it to our own lives. You see, the book of Isaiah is a prophecy that God's given to us, and he's inspired it by his Holy Spirit through the prophet Isaiah to speak to God's people. God is speaking. He's speaking to his people then, and he's speaking to his people now. And in this case, he's speaking about two particular things, judgment and hope. Judgment and hope. Those aren't things that you typically think should go together. But see, when we understand our sin in light of God's holiness, when we understand our rebellion in light of God's faithfulness, we can see exactly why they go together. See, if we go all the way back to the beginning with Adam and Eve, 
we see Adam and Eve living their life before God. God's instructed them on how to live and to obey him and follow him. But in the midst of the garden, Adam and Eve rebel against God. They choose a false independence. They grasp to be God instead of being dependent on God. And since that time until now, all of creation and every human being has been plagued by sin and been plagued by the fruit of sin, which is brokenness, a broken world that we find ourselves in, broken bodies that we have where things don't quite work the way that we would hope that they do or should, broken relationships in all ways, shapes, and forms, broken thoughts, broken lives. And if we're honest, brokenness is wearying. And in Romans chapter 8, it actually says that all of creation is groaning together with us, groaning over brokenness, longing for redemption, longing for restoration and renewal, groaning that something would change. In the book of Isaiah, we see that God is bringing righteous judgment on his people. He's bringing it on his people for their disobedience, for the rebellion. And it's right for God to bring about judgment because God is holy and he's perfect and he alone is God and all of creation, every last person has rebelled against his holiness. We've rebelled against his perfection. We, like Adam and Eve, have grasped to be God instead of grasping onto God. And we see examples of this in the chapters in Isaiah right before this text. In chapter 9 alone, Isaiah tells the people they haven't repented. They haven't turned away from their sin and their rebellion and their false worship to God. They have leaders who've led them astray from God. Everyone, Isaiah says in chapter 9, verse 17, everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. And in chapter 6 and in chapter 10, in reference to his people and in reference to the rest of the world, it says that God has cut them all down to a stump. And so the picture we have as we get into Isaiah chapter 11, our text for today is a picture of desolation and despair, a picture of the fruit of our rebellion. But in the midst of discipline, in the midst of judgment, God bring us, brings a promise of restoration, a promise of renewal. In the midst of all this, he gives hope. Listen to verse 1 again. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. See, God has promised that a person from David's line would sit on the throne as the king of God's people forever. But it's been a debacle up to this point. I mean, sure, there have been some kings who have been good, but by and large, many of them have led God's people astray. They've chased after other things besides God. They've led God's people away from him in his good ways. And like in the time of the judges where there was no king in Israel, each person was doing what they thought was right in their own eyes. Man, that sounds a lot like the world we live in today. They might as well not have had a king at all because everyone was acting like they were the king of their own kingdoms. The hope of a redeeming Messiah King, the one that would come through the line of David to bless the whole world, had been completely decimated at this point. All that remained was a stump. But, Isaiah says, but out of that stump a shoot will appear and a branch that will bear fruit. Life comes in a place of death. Hope in a place of despair. And all of it comes in an unexpected place. 
See, in context, this is immense hope for God's people after judgment, but it has a larger aim in mind, not just for the people of Israel that Isaiah is speaking to specifically in that moment. This is supposed to give hope to a whole world that's in desperate need of redemption. But these things aren't just things that will appear, life, hope, restoration, and redemption. No, someone is coming. Someone is coming that will bring about these things. See, the original audience would have known immediately upon hearing this verse that what Isaiah was talking about, who Isaiah was talking about, was the promised Messiah, the rescuer of God's people, the promised Savior, King, and Redeemer of his people. Because so far, Isaiah has mentioned multiple times that a rescuer is coming. In the next few verses, we learn what kind of king he will be. Look at verses 2 through 4. And it says, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Man, what an amazing picture of a glorious king. The Spirit of God will rest on him. And because of that, he will have the spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, of knowledge and fear of the Lord. Amazing characteristics for any leader to have. And Isaiah highlights the fear of the Lord. Now, the fear of the Lord isn't where we cower before God, where we run away from him. It's about reverence before him. Holy trepidation as we live life before a holy and awesome God. The concept of fearing the Lord is often foreign to us because we don't fear the Lord. We mock Him with our words, with our lives, which I think is just another way of running away from Him. But this King, this King is the opposite of all previous kings, all previous rulers, all previous leaders of God's people. This king is different from all people in general. This king will find deep joy in living before God in reverence and living before God in obedience because he understands God's holiness. He understands God's righteousness. He believes and trusts that God's ways and will are good. Not only Will he have these awesome spirit-given characteristics, though? He will also be a better judge and be a better leader than anyone who's come before him. He won't judge anyone by outward appearance, by what his eyes see. He will judge with righteousness and equity, especially for the poor and meek, especially for the weak and marginalized. And the people in our culture even today that are often judged by appearances I mean, this is so different than the world we live in. We constantly look at one another and the people around us, and instead of getting to know someone, instead of knowing what's actually going on in their life, we're quick to judge based off what we see on the outside. We can think because someone looks good, they must be good, or because someone looks disheveled, they must live a broken, disheveled life. But this judge, this king, will look into the heart of a person. He's good, he's benevolent, he's patient, and he's kind. But he doesn't just come with wisdom and kindness. He comes with a powerful word. Look at the rest of verse 4. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. 
Man, the imagery here is amazing. He, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And this isn't just about punishment. He comes to speak life. It, it, this brings up the imagery of Moses. When Moses is leading God's people and they're longing to be, to be fed, they're longing to have water to drink, Moses takes his rod and strikes the wa- rock and living water comes out. The weary world needs life-giving water. It needs to be woken up. It needs redemption. And the word of the king will bring it about. When he speaks his word, life will come in places of death. Man, he doesn't do it in a timid way. No, it's going to be intense, earth-shaking, grave-opening words. His word will literally call spiritually dead men and women to life, and in some cases, physically dead people to life. He is drastically different than any other leader or king, and what wonderful king he is. But we also see that his word, the breath of his lips, will also kill the wicked. This king will not stand for injustice or rebellion, and he will reserve his harshest words, not for the wayward, but for the wicked, not for the seeker, but for the mocker. There is power in the words of this king. Power to bring about life and death. Power like no other. And then Isaiah says in verse 5 that he'll be marked by righteousness and faithfulness. These are defining characteristics. If someone were to say, well, what is this king going to be like? Who will he be? What what does he look like? What are his characteristics? You could just say, well, it's these two things, righteousness and faithfulness. They summarize what this shoot from the stump of Jesse will be like. And this is definitely like the leader's the people of God had seen up to this point. See, what these first few verses are indicating to Isaiah's original audience, what they're indicating to us is that the reason that this king is so different, the reason that he looks completely different than any other leader they've had is because this king and his kingdom are not of this world. And we see that even more in the next few verses. See, if you're looking at your scriptures, if you're looking at these texts that we're looking at, what we see in verses 1 through 5 shows us the characteristics of this king. But in verses 6 through 9, what we see are the consequences of his righteous and faithful ruling. Verse 6 says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." Now, there's been some debate amongst scholars as to whether we should take these things literally. Like, there's, is there going to come a day when the lion's going to be eating straw instead of meat? But I don't really think that's the point for Isaiah. I think what he's trying to communicate, what he's doing is painting a word picture to describe the overarching reality of the rule of the good king. What he's showing us is that all of the things that once produced conflict, all of the things that once produced hurt, All the things that once produced fear or danger or insecurity or evil, all of those things will be removed from you and removed from the world. What we see in this description is an amazing picture of shalom, the Hebrew word that we often translate into the word peace. 
But it's more than just peace. It's a, it's a perfect peace and it's harmony and it's wholeness and it's unity. I mean, notice some of the things he says in this text here. We see natural enemies restored to one another. The weak will be protected and a child will lead them. And I love verse 8. I mean, we have a lot of young kids in our church, and so whether you're a parent or not, you're around kids, at least on a Sunday morning. And our parenting in this day and age has become increasingly vigilant because we live in a broken world. There are so many things that I think about that I did as a kid that I'm not sure that I would let my kids do, not because my parents didn't parent me well, but because our world just seems so dark. But look at what he says. Babies and toddlers will place and pl- play and place their hand over the den of poisonous snakes, and everything's going to be okay. Man, what an amazing reality. But in the midst of that, I don't want you to miss something here. Do you remember what happens in Genesis chapter 3? When Adam and Eve are standing before God, he's called them to walk in obedience to him, and he said, hey, the one thing you can't do is eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then what happens? A sly snake comes into the garden, and he deceives God's people not to trust God, not to believe God, and so they rebel against their holy and almighty creator. They believe the word of a forked tongue rather than the words of the one who spoke them into existence. Verse 8 shows us that's a direct reversal of all that. There's no more satanic snakes that are going to cause harm to God's people anymore. The head of the serpent will be crushed. And then there's a promise of relief in verse 9. God's people won't be hurt. They won't be harmed. They won't be destroyed any longer. In the place of God's dwelling, they will be secure. And what an amazing picture of restoration and renewal, of rest and peace. But what causes these amazing realities? What brings about a world like this? We may say, well, man, I'd love to have a world like this. Like, well, how do we get that? Is it through human ingenuity? through a mutual agreement on global peace, that if we all just start being nice to one another, that everything will be okay? No, verse 9 gives us the answer. The second half says, For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Shalom will be restored when the earth is full of the knowledge of God. Full. I mean, that's exhaustive and total knowledge. But what does that really mean? What does the full knowledge of God mean? Just the other day, my son Isaac, he's five, asked our son Owen, who's eight, he said, who's your favorite person? Who's your favorite person in the whole world? Who who is it? Who is it? And Owen said, Jackie Robinson. Owen loves baseball. He loves learning about baseball and the history of baseball. And his one of his favorite people, he says, is Jackie Robinson. But I said, no, no, no. uh, Isaac wants to know, uh, you know who your favorite person is that you know. And he said, I know Jackie Robinson. <laughs> and I said, no, 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 bud. Not, not you, how would you know Jackie Robinson? Like, he's not alive anymore. And he said, well, I've read lots of books about Jackie Robinson. Like, I know Jackie Robinson. I, yeah, I, I get what you're saying, but there's a difference. You know about Jackie Robinson, but you don't know Jackie Robinson. See, this knowledge of the Lord isn't head knowledge. It isn't academic knowledge. It's relational knowledge. This isn't about knowing about God. It's about knowing him in a real and personal way. And this relational knowledge of God comes through the relational experience of knowing this good king that Isaiah says is coming and has come, the promised Messiah who will transform the world. 
And what we need to see in all of this is that Jesus fulfills all of these things. He is from the line of David. He is the good king whom the Spirit of God has rested on. Jesus is full of wisdom. He's full of understanding. He's full of counsel. He's full of might. He's full of knowledge. And he has a fear of the Lord. Jesus delighted to do his Father's will. He delighted in the worship of his heavenly Father. Jesus gloried in the glory of God. Jesus spoke words of life physically. He healed people who were blind and lame and unable to walk. He called Lazarus by name out of the grave and he got up and walked and lived again. Jesus spoke words of life spiritually, telling people your sins are forgiven. He preached the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God and he invited all who are weary and all who are heavy laden to find rest in him. And his words condemned the religious elite, those who were preaching a false gospel of good works that led only to death. Jesus was the picture of perfect righteousness and absolute faithfulness. And he made all of that abundantly clear when he went to the cross to pay for the sin of people from every tribe, every language, and every nation, dying a death for his people so they could experience restoration, they could experience renewal and absolute redemption. And see, Jesus is able to rule in this way. He's able to bring about these things that Isaiah speaks about only because he is God in human flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. And so if we find ourselves here two days before Christmas, a day that we set aside as the church to celebrate the greatest gift that's ever been given, the birth of this King, Jesus our Savior. But historically for the church, this hasn't just been about Christmas Day, it's been about celebrating the season of Christmas, the season of Advent. Advent means arrival, but this isn't just any arrival, it's the celebration of an arrival that God's people have been longing for for a really, really, really long time. And in Christ, a Redeemer has come. In Christ, a glorious new King has come. And so we get to celebrate that. We we rejoice in that just as much as God's people did 2,000 years ago because this is still mind-blowing news. Though you were lost and separated from God, He sent a rescuer to redeem you. But as we celebrate Advent, we should also experience expectation and longing. Because as we read this text about the gloriousness of this Savior King, we have to recognize, yes, Jesus has come and the Spirit of God has been upon Him and He has spoken His word of life, but all of this redemption and renewal that we see in verses 6 through 9, it hasn't happened yet. We still experience brokenness suffering and I am definitely not going to let my three-year-old play over the whole of a cobra right now so what's going on here see what we need to see is that there's a break between verse five and verse six and it's a break of waiting and longing and I don't mean just a break literally on the space within your bible on the page there what I mean is is that there's a break in time. Verses 1 through 5 are a picture of Jesus' first coming, his first advent. Verses 6 through 9 are a picture of Jesus' second 
coming, his second advent. And so what this means for you and I as we find ourselves here today is that we live in a time of already, but not yet. And so that's why we sing songs like Joy to the World and O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus. And so in these songs and in this season, we have opportunity to express joy and longing for redemption and relief. And that's what I want to encourage you with this morning. And see, this morning all of us are feeling the weight and effect of sin and brokenness in various ways. Whether that's the weight and consequences of personal sin or from being sinned against by others, or maybe for some of us it's the experience of that creation-level brokenness in our lives or the lives of those we love through their own rebellion against God or through sickness and suffering or even death. And that's the case whether you call yourself a follower of Jesus or not. But my hope for all of us is that what we would see in this text in Isaiah 11 is that God is faithful. He's faithful to his promises. He's faithful to his people. And he will finish what he started in the work of redemption. My hope for you is that in this Advent season, in Christmas, that there'd be a right combination of rejoicing and longing. See, you might be wondering, why is there this break between verse 5 and verse 6? Why didn't Jesus just come at once and, and, and usher in the fullness of his kingdom when he came the first time? Well, simply put, for your sake. See, before Jesus ascended to the Father and returned to glory, he said he was going to prepare a place for us. And he told his disciples, a small group of people, to go and take the good news of the gospel to the nations so that the nations would know of his redeeming grace. That's you and me. That's your neighbor. That's the seven billion people that live in our world today. See, God through Christ is working to bring about not just local redemption and local restoration for God's people in the time that Isaiah wrote this text. He's bringing about global redemption and global restoration. Look at verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Do you see what Isaiah is saying here? He's saying the sign or the banner of all this actually coming to fruition is Jesus. Jesus is the shoot of Jesse because he is the perfect good king, and he also is the root of Jesse because he is the eternal Son of God through whom and by whom all things were created. See, we know he will come again to bring all these things to reality. We know that he will come again to rule and reign because he came already. And he will be a signal for the people. He will be a sign for the nations. This would have told the original audience, listen, this isn't just for you. This isn't just for Israel. It isn't just for the people of Abraham. This is for all people, that all who call on the name of Jesus will be saved, that all who call on the name of Jesus will be restored to a right relationship with God and will experience the new heavens and the new earth, experience the perfect shalom of the Savior. Second Peter chapter 3 verse 9 
Peter encourages us, with, encourages us with this. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But here's where I want you to consider how you are waiting as we wait for Jesus to come again and make all things new. For some of you, it begins with acknowledging your need for redemption in the first place. See, Christmas isn't just a time to celebrate the birth of baby Jesus. Christmas is a time to celebrate King Jesus, who was born in the barn in order to go to a cross so that he could rescue you. A little boy born in obscurity, the shoot and root of Jesse can save you from yourself and your sin. But you have to confess your need for him. You have to have faith that he is who he said he is and he did what he said he came to do. See, what this text tells you is that you no longer need to grope and grasp for glory that isn't yours. But instead, you can run to glory because you know where it's found. You know who it is found in. And in him, you can have everlasting peace. Hear the invitation of our God and King from later on in Isaiah chapter 55. He says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. This good king, this Amazing God invites you to come to him with empty hands. He invites you to himself as you are. And this good king who has come and will come again to bring redemption and restoration says, come to me. So will you trust in him? Will you trust in this good savior king today? Will you come and partake of his goodness and grace? For others of you, this Advent season, you're, you're feeling crushed. Crushed maybe by your own sin and self-focus. Or maybe right now you're just feeling crushed by just kind of your apathetic life with Jesus. And so if that's you with this text, I want you to be reminded that Jesus came to set you free. That his word is life and his ways are good. But sometimes we forget that and we stray from our first love. Paul Tripp in his Advent devotional says this, it really is possible to live in a state of Advent schizophrenia where you celebrate the birth of the Messiah while actively denying your need for his birth, life, death, and resurrection. So are you living in such a way right now that actually denies your need for Jesus? that denies your need for grace. Brothers and sisters, the one we so often reject on the day-to-day of our life has come and will come again to renew the world. And so I want to encourage you, exhort you to turn to him again, whether you've strayed a lot or strayed a little, 
See the king in his beauty. See the king in his grace and be refreshed in your vision of your savior and redeemer today. For others of you, you're struggling and suffering the effects of a broken world in a very particular and personal way. Whether that's sickness or mental struggles, loss or loneliness. Maybe you've experienced unexpected grief. Maybe you're overwhelmed by darkness in your life right now. Or maybe you're just weary and tired. If that's you, let me encourage you this morning. That in the midst of your sorrow, in the midst of your sadness, in the midst of your suffering, that you would have hope from this picture that Isaiah gives to us. We have hope even from just verse 1. That life emerges from an old, dead stump. That hope comes in an unexpected place, in an unexpected way. As one author puts it, this story helps you place our sorrows of the past few weeks, in the past few months, or the past few years within the bigger story of what God is doing. Because see, a day is coming when the knowledge of the Lord our God will cover the earth like waters cover the sea, and it'll be glorious. And in that day, all of our idealistic ideologies and all the scars of our broken lives and broken world will disappear forever under the abundant healing of Christ our King. Listen, friends, a day is coming. A day is coming when it won't be all hell breaking loose, but all the schemes and tactics of hell being broken forever. Because of that reality, this Advent, this Christmas season, we can long for the end of suffering. We can long for the end of sin. We can long for the end of all things that are evil and wicked. We can long for the gloriousness of life in Christ, the peace of life in Christ. Because he has come, we can have confidence that he will come again. So now we wait, but not without hope. As we long, we need to realize that Isaiah isn't telling us about when. He's telling us about who. And that can bring us peace now. Because see, all of us desperately need what only the king of glory and grace can give. So look to him. Trust in Jesus today. Whether for the first time or the thousandth time. In this text in Isaiah, there isn't something to apply or something to do. Isaiah doesn't tell us to do anything. No, this is a text full of truth to reorient your heart, reorient your mind this week, this month, this coming year. Brothers and sisters, during Advent, we celebrate the coming of Jesus. And with the coming of Jesus, the weary world rejoices. So let's rejoice in the midst of our longing. Let's rejoice in the midst of our waiting and our weariness. Let's rejoice in the midst of our suffering. Let's rejoice in a way that the world will see our Savior through us and inquire about him from us. Let's rejoice in hope and give encouragement because Jesus has come and will come again. Fear not. For I, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Amen. As we come to the communion table this morning, we come in a place of celebration and a place of longing. 
See, Jesus instituted this meal as a means of remembrance and refreshment. That as we eat the bread, a picture of Jesus' body broken for our brokenness. And as we drink the cup, a picture of Jesus' blood shed for our sin. We proclaim his death until he comes again. And so this is a meal of thanks and anticipation. A time to rejoice that we've been set free from our sin, but longing for the wedding feast of the Lamb when we will experience the fullness of shalom. And so as you come forward this morning, come with a celebration and longing and look to your Savior who is faithful and true, the good King who will make all things new. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, again, just want to reiterate to you, we're so thankful and grateful that you're here this morning. But we would just ask you to hang out in your seat. Don't come forward to take communion this morning because this meal is a declaration of our hope in Jesus. And so instead of taking communion this morning, I want to invite you to take Christ this morning. If you could just hang out in your seat and just pray to God, ask him to save you, ask him to bring you into relationship with him. Or maybe you just have questions right now, and that's fine too. But I want you to let somebody around you know that so we can journey with you as you journey to Jesus. That's why we're here as a community, to be able to do that with you. And those of you that will come forward, you can come to the tables at the front, the tables in the back, tear off a piece of bread, take a cup to drink, and what Christ has done for you will be spoken over you this morning. I'm going to pray now, and then we're actually going to show a short video uh, just to kind of cap off our Advent season. So before you come forward, just watch and listen to this video, and then once it's over, just come forward whenever you're ready. Let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks for the glorious gift of Jesus, for the glorious gift of grace. God, we pray that you would help us. Would you help us to rejoice? Would you help us to rejoice at the longing that Christ has come and he will come again? God, would you give us just a vision, a a big vision of Christ, a big vision of our Savior, a big picture of who Jesus is? God, would you give us hope in him Encourage us, God. Save people around us, God. Help us to rejoice. Heal our hearts. And in the midst of all of that, God, we pray, come Lord Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.